for us as an organization, I, I think simply stated, to be human is to be cared for and to be loved and to be valued. Um, kind of paraphrasing one of the folks that really informs a lot of our work, which is Paulo Freire. Uh, to be human, we have to be able to tell our own stories. We have to be able to find our own destiny. And welcome, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, guys, gals, and non-binary pals to another episode of All the Above, the show that gives you an unstandardized take on education. I'm Jeffrey Garrett, one of your co-hosts, and I've been a middle and high school principal and a high school social studies teacher. And as always, I'm joined by... What up, family? It's Manuel Rustin, your favorite teacher's favorite teacher. I'm a high school history teacher here in the Los Angeles area. I just wrapped up year 18 in the classroom, and this here, of course, is all the above. Your home for news and analysis of all matters pertaining to our world of education. Shout out to those of you who might be joining us for the very first time. Now, those of you who've been with us for a minute, you know we've had um, several weeks in a row of passing periods. It's been a while since we've had a full video episode because, of course, we're wrapping up the school year and we're we're just a two-person operation here. So, shout out to those of you who've been hanging in there with us, and shout out to those of you who are checking us out for the very first time. Now, Jeff. Um, it's been a minute, it's been a minute since we've had a full video episode with some super dope guests. Thankfully for us, like hardly anything has happened in the last month or two. I mean, aside from more mass shootings and crazy Supreme Court rulings and gas prices continuing to go up, crypto crashing and all that other stuff, but hardly anything's really happened. So how, how you been, man? How you been? Well, first thing, um, and well, let me just say greetings from uh, Gilead 2.0. Uh, over here, uh, otherwise known as the United States of America, uh, land of the not free and uh, home of the slave. Um, so, we have it. you know, <laughs> not, not a whole lot more to say about it than that. But uh, here on day one, following the uh, horrendous, horrific, hateful, violent decision by uh, the United States Supreme Court uh, stripping away the rights to bodily autonomy and full humanity to uh, slightly more than half of the population uh, here in this country uh, of women and people who can't get pregnant. And so, you know, that's landed. It's, uh, it's a tough day uh, in this country's history and a sobering uh, moment, I think, or should be uh, for us all. Um, and so, you know, my, my thoughts and... Uh, just empathy goes out uh, really to everybody listening to this that is perhaps sharing in the sense of uh, anger and outrage and frustration that um, that I certainly am today. And, um, you know, we're going to have to get organized, man. The, uh, the power is in the hands of the people and uh, we're going to need to use it here. Yeah, man. Yeah, man. And that's just in the midst of all the other rulings that have come down and all the other just challenges that we face. And we're, of course, in it together. And our ALTA fam knows that we long on the show, we have long supported the efforts for us to come together as humans to create a better world for tomorrow and help our little ones out since we are handing them a world that is most certainly, most certainly on fire and just a complete mess right now. So shout out to everybody out there doing the good work. And for here, for today's full episode of All of the Above, we got some super dope guests in the building. I think we got two guests today, uh, Jeff. So why don't you go ahead and tell us what's on the agenda for today? 
Yes, indeed, man. Well, well, today, as usual, we got a good one for everybody. It's been a minute since I've been able to say that here in the studio, so uh, I just <laughs> I just got a little little happy saying that to you, man. Well, uh, but you are correct. We have two incredible guests coming on the show with us today. We have none other than Chris McNutt and Nick Covington, who are co-founders of an organization called the Human Restoration Project. Now, this is a, a nonprofit national online community that also helps organize and support um, causes for radically human-centered education, progressive education um, across the country. So you may have interacted with them you know, on Twitter or in other spaces, um, seen some of the professional development or curriculum and instructional resources that they uh, help share and elevate and, and support across the country. We're going to dig into, uh, I think, what will be a really meaty discussion with them, Manuel, about kind of what we mean uh, and what they mean when they talk about um, human-centered education and progressive education and what really is our charge in this moment, especially in this kind of moment where we are seeing, you know, real policy violence being visited upon uh, the people of this country, how we can work within schools and around our school systems to kind of create the radically human-centered kinds of spaces that um, our students and our communities deserve. And so um, should be a fascinating conversation, folks. Definitely stick around for it. You don't want to miss it. Yeah, absolutely. And this, you know, this being summertime, summer break for teachers across the country, this is a perfect time to sort of reflect and reset and get back to really for for myself personally speaking for myself what i look to be really the the heart and center of education and educating and teaching which is just supporting these little humans and helping these humans um not only be seen and be heard but realize their own potential for for change and for enacting and, and creating a better tomorrow so perfect time to have this conversation about humanizing education and uh shout out to those of you classroom teachers who are tuning in despite what was a very very challenging year you are you are still here ready for these conversations and yes, you are getting your rest like I am as well, but um, you're also thinking ahead to uh, next school year already. We can't help it. We can't help it. All right, folks. Up next, though, is going to be our Do Now, where we take a look at news and headlines around the world of education. Stay tuned. All right, folks. Now it's time for today's Do Now. Jeff, how are we going to do the Do Now today? Well, man, well, today, uh, you know, it is summer. And uh, school is not in session. True. So I think in the in, in the spirit of just raining on on everyone's beautiful summer parade, Don't we got do a pop it. quiz Don't for you, folks. Pop quiz. Ah, <laughs> of course. Ah, yes. <laughs> Nothing like summertime assessment. All right. Yeah. Exactly. All right, Jeff. Well, I have actually I have the first quiz question for today, and that is. Forget the book bans. What do we really need to ban from the classroom? Wow. Uh, you know, I think what I would say, of course, is CRT. Um, and I would say uh, wokeism. I would Obviously. say uh, the, the woke mob teaching the wokeism. Uh, and did I say CRT? Did I mention CRT? Uh, I don't know. Is there is there anything else that, that should be banned from from classrooms? Well, I think it's mostly just CRT and wokeism, right? Yeah, you left out um, 
grooming or whatever they're they're saying uh, now. Yes, exactly, exactly. Jeez, they're so crazy. They uh, are. Yes. Okay. Tell me, Manuel. Am well, I correct? Well, Jeff. Actually, uh, the answer for for this question in this case is um, cell phones. Cell phones, Jeff. Mm, mm, we okay. are. We are knee deep in the cell phone debates, which has taken um, taken a turn since the pandemic, really. And this story for for uh, today's do now actually is an opinion piece uh, written by an English teacher that went viral, and we thought it would be worthwhile for us to have this conversation because this is what a lot of classroom teachers around the nation are are really grappling with right now. All right, and this comes to us by way of Ed Search, and the author is Tyler Rablin, who's a high school language arts teacher in Washington State, and he writes that he used to be a champion for phone in the classroom. Earlier on in his teaching, he used to ask students to bring their phones to class so they could record skits and videos and make character interviews for Flipgrid and all kinds of stuff. But now he says asking students to pick up their phones, even if using them for learning activities, is just too much temptation. The field of app design has changed drastically over time. And now when a student has their phone out, there's an endless stream of notifications flooding their screens. Some students are able to control their phone use, but these, as these devices have become more ingrained in everything we do, that number is dwindling. Now, Rablin points out that um, there's work from Stanford's Kelly McGonigal and author James Clear about habits and willpower and the increasing difficulty that people are having monitoring their own phone use. And he says that he's come to the realization that phone use has become something other than a decision. It's become a habit, a nearly uncontrollable one for many students. And he ends his piece by writing, quote, this is why when my ninth graders enter the classroom next year, they will hand over their phones and spend 60 minutes in a phone-free environment. I've tried other approaches. I've championed other approaches. I can't anymore. So Jeff, this is a teacher who I think represents a lot of classroom teachers who are of, who have come to the realization that the former techniques and strategies they used to use to help students monitor their own phone use are simply insufficient these days. Now, what are your thoughts about this idea of just outright eliminating phones from the classroom? Yeah, I'll say uh, in one very brief sentence, Manuel, I love it. Uh, I think this is actually among the most compelling uh, arguments I have heard on the kind of debate or historical debate around the use of cell phones in classrooms that I've ever heard. Um, and coming from a place that, at least to me, did not feel like bitter old man pointing his finger down at the young whippersnappers who just, you know, are... Uh, don't do it like we did back in the day, kind of a kind of a vibe, right? Like a person who who understands and sees the potential for good that exists in cell phones and also recognizes that what cell phones function as in today's day and age, by the way, not just for children, okay? As a person who who teaches, quote unquote, right? Like I conduct professional learning seminars all the time with adults. This ain't just for the kids, right? Like what what these devices have become because of the uh, manipulation techniques, the marketing techniques that are built into them precisely to monopolize human attention spans by companies like Apple, Google, and the you know Facebook, Meta, whatever they want to call themselves now, and the million other app makers out there. Uh, really, what we are doing is setting students up for failure. Uh, by saying, 
you know, have this incredibly irresistible tempting device that's yelling at you to pay attention to it constantly, right? That even leaves you with the ghost feeling <laughs> that it's calling you if you don't have it uh, on or with you at any given point in time, it's an impossible ask of them, right? Um, or certainly difficult to the point that it is undermining the purpose and goals of, of school. So I actually, I, you know, reading this, I was like, I can't find anything I fundamentally disagree with uh, in his argument. I think it is well reasoned. I think the one thing I would say about Emmanuel is that this should not be something that I think is left up to individual teachers to have to quote yeah. unquote police and enforce, right? I think he's making excellent points and we should make collective decisions as schools and school systems to say the same way we do with like skateboards bikes, uh, you, know, <laughs> you know, large athletic equipment that, you know, the kids bring with them to school in the morning. We have like a bike rack or a skateboard rack where you can lock your stuff up and store it for the day, right? And maybe at lunch you can access it and use it on the yard or whatever. But like during the day, this, this stands to do harm in the classroom setting. And so we don't allow it in the classroom setting. And I think that that is the reality for cell phones now. There's very few things that cell phones offer that we can't access through other digital devices in terms of the positive stuff, access to information, et cetera. Um, we can do that with Chromebooks, iPads, whatever. We don't need individual cell phones. Parents don't need to call their kids in the middle of the day. I'm sorry, parents, you don't. Parents for thousands of years didn't need to call their kids at 11 a.m. or text their kids at 11 a.m. You don't need to. Yeah. I'm sorry. You just don't. Mm -hmm. And uh, and so we just need to make a collective decision about this. And um, I think he's make, he's advocating for the right decision. Yeah, I agree with that now. And I say now because my, my view of this has changed over time. And anybody who's worked around me, I guess, is known. My view of it has changed over time because it used to be where they were a really good tool in the classroom, especially back in the days of having to like take your whole class down to the computer lab to access this and access that. Like phones were uh, very, very helpful early on. But now that we have one-to-one -one Chromebooks for all of our students, at least in my school district, um, I, I don't really have any reason for them to use their phone for any technology type stuff, like anything at all. Even if it's like wanting to like take pictures or document or make a video or whatever, like they could do that with the Chromebook as well. Uh, so like the, the benefits that used to exist are not really there anymore, at least they're not needed anymore. And the, the cost of it is, is so much higher than it used to be because these things are, you use the word manipulator, manipulate, Manipulative. Manipulative. There we go. There we go. Uh, in your in your uh, discussion just now, and that's exactly what these things do. They manipulate their users, and the goal the goal is for them to be addictive. Like if you are a very successful uh, app, whether it's a social media platform or a game or something else, if you are very successful, your your users can't help but check in and spend as much time as possible. So your your goal is to make it make yourself addictive for these kids and or for users, period, whether they be children or not. And that's exactly what these things are. And in his original, like this, this op-ed uh, started off of a, a Twitter thread that he had that went viral. And in that he talked about like addiction and you know what what sense would it make to take somebody who has who's struggling with alcohol addiction to take them to a bar and to tell them to only drink water. Like, you know, monitor yourself, uh, regulate, you know, uh, set your own boundaries and only to the water like you're asking you're asking for something that is just going to be very 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 difficult especially with with young ones and even if your lesson is super engaging 
even if your classroom is just like kids love it, they love coming to class, everything about it is awesome. A lot of times I've seen just with my own eyes and my own experience, I've seen students just not even realize when they reach for their phones and look at something. Like I'll walk up to a student and like they'll look at me and they'll be on their phone, they'll look at me and it'll like take them a moment to register the fact that they're even on their phone after having just, you know, promised me not to be on the phone anymore. Like it's it's just something that is, like he said, it's, it's less of a choice now for these young people and it's more just a, a habit, something that just happens that they are struggling to deal with. So I fully support now, I fully support um, just not having phones around at all and not allowing them out at all. It's very difficult though, like you pointed out, it's very difficult for a teacher to take that on individually. And I know so many schools out there where the rule is no phones in the classroom, but it's up to the teachers to enforce it. And some teachers, they, they can handle that. Other teachers, it just becomes, it's just so much. And we really need school-wide systems to, to do this. And he points that out in his piece too. Like we really can't rely on the individual teacher because it is very difficult. I used to think teaching seniors, yeah. I used to think I was doing them justice by having them monitor their own phone use because they're going to be in community college or, or four-year university or somewhere else the next year. And they're going to have to do that. They're going to have to do that. So why not like learn how to do that in my class? But it's, it's becoming a losing effort. So yeah, man, I'm call me yeah. cranky old man if necessary, but yeah, get those phones out of sight that's, we're just, we're there now. But I'll, I'll finish by saying we're temporarily there now because of course, the next iteration of it is, well, what do you do about their watches? What do you do when, uh, you know, I know Google had their Google Glass a couple years ago where, you know, it was the glasses that you wore that would be that interface. And I know that didn't pan out, but I'm sure that's going to be back eventually in, you know, between watches, eyeglasses, earbuds, all the other stuff. Technology is expanding beyond just the device itself. So um, at some point, there's going to have to be a reckoning about what the classroom looks like in an increasingly technological world. Yep. Yeah, I 100% agree with that, Manuel. And I would say, you know, we can cross that bridge when we come to it. For yeah. now, we need like, you know, I think I've seen actually in your classroom in the past and many others uh, around the country, the like little mini lockers that, yeah, used uh, to that have are those. like a yeah. little cabinet, right? That kids can come in, put their phone in and, you know, just set it. They can charge it in there if they need to or whatever, right? Like that is, we need infrastructure to support this, to reduce the potential conflict that this can create between kids and adults that is is a, a, what I see is maybe the biggest risk of implementing this kind of policy. So we need a clear policy with infrastructure to support it that minimizes fighting and conflict and just says like, hey, this is what we're about. You know, like if you if you want to protest this, like you can homeschool or you can go to a private school where they don't do this or whatever. Right. But like here in public school, this is how we do school. Right. Like there are rules. So. Uh, that's what I would say. All right, right. All right, Jeff, we have a second pop quiz question for today's Do Now. What do we got? What do we got? Yes, sir. Yes, we do. Okay, so the question is, uh, Manuel, what actually helps keep folks out of prison? Oh, this is easy, Jeff. Um, expanded police budgets. You just got to fund yes. the police, Jeff. Fund the police Get them this up. These these officers are out here with barely a living wage, according to Stacey Abrams yesterday. So, like, we got to boost their money, man. And that'll keep people out of prison because, you know, the police will keep them out. That's what they do. Well, you're mostly correct. What you forgot is also militarizing the police. We need tanks. Oh, we need yeah, for grenade sure. launchers. We need uh, tasers, the big guns that spray the microwaves on a crowd and boil people's skin. We need all that. Uh, so, 
Yeah, that's that's Damn clearly right. the answer to this question. Uh, no, Manuel, that is uh, that is one perspective, one crazy nutty perspective on uh, the answer to this question. The answer we are looking for today, however, uh, Manuel, is college education. College okay. education. Yeah, so uh, let's get into this one, Manuel. We have a fascinating story to dig into today. It is coming to us from um, LAist, uh, which is a local media outlet here in Los Angeles, uh, written by Alicia Nadwarni and Lauren Migaki. I apologize if I am mispronouncing anything at all there. Um, and these two authors observed a, a political science class being taught at the California Rehabilitation Center, a medium security prison here in Southern California. In it, they saw about a dozen incarcerated men who also were college juniors and seniors. They gather several times a week to take classes through Pitzer College, a small elite arts college of about 1,000 students located uh, an hour away in Claremont. The men observed uh, by the authors take a variety of classes, including psychology, literature, mathematics, and history, which will, in the end, add up to a bachelor's degree in organizational studies. These men have been given a rare opportunity to earn a college degree while in prison. Today, at least for now, there are very few bachelor's degree programs offered in prisons because there has been a long-standing ban on people in prison using federal money to pay for college classes. This is, of course, a vestige of the 1994 crime bill signed into law by Bill Clinton, but of course architected by none other than Joseph R. Biden, um, which uh, made it illegal to use those federal funds. Congress, however, has recently lifted that ban, starting in the upcoming 2022, or excuse me, 2023-24 school year. Uh, in that year, people in prison will have access to Pell Grants. The money, which provides up to about $7,000 a year per student, doesn't need to be repaid. These, of course, are grants. The change will mean a chance at higher education for more than half a million people who will be academically eligible, according to the Vera Institute of Justice. As anticipation grows for this expansion, a number of higher ed pro uh, providers are starting to design programs with correctional facilities. Nonprofits and foundations are teeing up money to help as well. And college and university administrators are looking to places like Pitzer College to learn about both the potential and the limitations of college and prison, beginning what may become one of the largest social experiments in prison education in our nation's history. So, Manuel, fascinating article here. Uh, often, you know, we think about education uh, in this society kind of everywhere but prison uh, in some way. So this is like a, a really interesting sort of crossing of a boundary here um, with some potentially fascinating implications. So, uh, Manuel, what's your take on this? What do we stand to learn from this? What, what are you thinking? Yeah, so I love this. I mean, the carceral state is a monster. And by the look of things and, and looking at the national landscape right now, um, it's only gonna grow in size and strength. So I support any effort to help those who are caught up in the carceral system. In this case, uh, inmates in, in the profile here was California state prisons, but uh, folks, incarcerated folks across the country, I support any effort to help them 
gain education, help them have access to higher education in this case. And as pointed out, as was pointed out in the article, and I think it'd probably be common sense to a lot of folks. Like if you allow someone to, to obtain a college education and, and especially one that leads up to a college degree and they're released from prison, I, I think the odds of them going back to prison are so much lower because now they have a college degree. Now they have education that will help them not only just find employment, but also help them uh, just look through the world, look through their world uh, through a different lens than uh, perhaps they did prior to being incarcerated. So I love this effort. I did not realize, I mean, I knew the 1994 crime bill was a terrible thing. I knew it itself was a monster, but I didn't realize that it had such an impact on um, graduate or, or um, higher education programs within within. Uh, our incarceration system. So the article points out that there were something like 1,500 uh, degree programs in uh, in prisons across the the nation prior to the crime bill. And because of the crime bill, that number went from 1,500 to about eight that were privately funded. Like that is just ginormous. So I, I'm glad to see that that aspect of of the crime bill has been um, rectified, and that now there's going to be more programs uh, bouncing up. Of course, California several years ago, I think uh, the article said 2014 or something like that, um, allowed for state funding for community college classes so that community colleges would receive the same amount of funding for uh, incarcerated folks as they would for folks who are not incarcerated. And now we have something like 10,000 folks um, in the California prison system who are taking community college classes. So, so yeah, that's, that's a boost. I think uh, one of the uh, inmates profiled in this piece, uh, Kenny Butler, I believe was his name, talked about just how he felt like like an actual human when he walked into his college class and the professor didn't ask for his prison ID, but instead shook his hand. And he talked about uh, that powerful feeling of, of, of feeling heard and being able to dive deep into some um, some pedagogy, some critical reading and all kinds of stuff and uh, really experience that. So I love it. I love it. Um, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I love it too, man. This, this article was really fascinating and I appreciated uh, these authors for not just kind of skimming across the surface and sugarcoating, right? Like the, the path that the two men that the article really focuses on um, has been difficult, right? Yeah. They were both released from prison a little bit early because of the co concerns around COVID-19 uh, during the pandemic and attended classes at Pitzer College in person and had to experience some of the struggles of being this like grown man with, you know, in some cases with like gang tattoos, right? Uh, being a bit ostracized on a college campus, some of the challenges with finding gainful employment afterwards. So, you know, it's not like this is a silver bullet, solve everything with one, you know, with one pill yeah. type of a type of thing. But it did talk about like both the personal impact of this kind of uh, policy, right, on their own edification and development as a human being, right, um, emotionally, intellectually, et cetera, um, and the potential that this has to transform the lives of families that prisoners are connected to. So I think in our country, we have a kind of general public consciousness about prison that, that acts as though, well, we put those people over there, they're in the cage, we locked them up, we threw away the key, and like, that's it. Except the reality is people in prison, many of them are parents of children. All of them, almost all of them, are family members of living, fam of living relatives on the outside. Many of them were primary wage earners for the family, whether those wages came from legal or illegal means, right? So to think that we can just lock them up and throw away the key and it's going to be fine is a foolish enterprise, right? And so investing 
for pennies, right? $7,000 in a Pell Grant. I mean, as, a, as the wealthiest country on earth, Manuel, that is literally almost nothing, right? That is the, yeah. that is the, the, the dirt below the pocket change, <laughs> you know, that fell <laughs> under the cushions on our national couch, right? This is such a cheap investment in something that can be so positive for people to invest in them and give them hopefully a path forward. Now, of course, we have larger things to address in our carceral system, but like in the near term, this is such a good thing we can do for so little money, Manuel. And yeah. uh, it was it was a beautiful telling of, of that story. And I, I look forward to and really hope we see many more stories like this uh, in, in upcoming years as Pell Grants become available to folks behind bars. Yeah, for sure. And I definitely encourage uh, viewers or listeners to, to clink, click on this article below because, um, yeah, it was, it was a great read. It was a great read. It's, a, it's a, a rather long piece because it's telling these intricate stories about these folks who are incarcerated. Um, but yeah, it's a very, very, very um, great read. And Jeff, I know we only had two pop quiz questions, but I'm going to hit you with the third question. I'm going to hit you with a real pop, pop quiz question. And in this okay. case, I want to know, what do you think is the number, the number of folks who after the 1994 crime bill passed, who looked at that and thought, hmm, I was going to commit a crime, but now I see that if I do that, I won't have access to federal Pell Grants. So let me not commit that crime anymore because now they are tough on crime. So what, what number of folks do you think were dissuaded from criminal activity due to the lack of federal Pell Grants for higher education? Well, it must be millions and millions, Manuel, which is why everyone, everything has been so peaceful and safe since must 1994. Be. Yes. You are right. You're right. Okay. Sounds good. All right, folks, that about does it for today's Do Now. And certainly, as always, please uh, let us know what your thoughts are on those on those uh, stories there. The cell phones in the classroom. What, what, if you're a classroom teacher, what are your, what's going to be your approach heading into uh, this fall? Or is your approach going to be any different as you head back to the classroom this fall? And um, of course, for the, the funding for higher education, access to higher education for incarcerated folks across the land, what are your thoughts about that? So just let us know. Hit us up at AOTA Show on Twitter or Facebook or uh, just, you know, shoot us an email. All above show at gmail.com. But up next, we have our seminar, two super dope guests waiting for us to dive into this concept of humanizing education. That's up next. Stay tuned. Hey folks, thanks so much for tuning in to All The Above. We really appreciate you. And as you know, All The Above is a small operation. It's just me and just Manuel, that's it. We have no sponsorships, which means we are totally dependent on our amazing audience to help support the show. So here's what you can do. Go to our website, which is aotashow.com support. That's aotashow.com support. There you can find links to everything you can do to support the show. You find all the links to every platform that we're on where you can like, subscribe, follow, make sure you share our show with your whole network. Also, you can donate there. We are on Venmo, we're on Cash App, and most importantly, you can find the link to our Anchor page where you can become a monthly patron. Even a small donation once a month will make a huge difference in helping us continue to produce the show. Lastly, you can find there the link to get your flyest, best, latest, all the above show merch. Okay, all you gotta do is go to aotashow.com slash support. Thanks, enjoy the rest of the show. All 
All right, folks, welcome to today's seminar. We are so excited to have you with us here today. And we have two fantastic guests who are here to dig into, I think, one of the meatiest, biggest, richest topics we dig into in many ways frequently on this show. But I think we're going to try to really uh, hit the nail on the head, so to speak, today uh, by talking about humanizing education, talking about progressive education. And um, our two fantastic guests um, are Chris McNutt and Nick Covington, co-founders of the Human Restoration Project. Uh, Chris and Nick, welcome to All the Above. Thank you. Thank you. Glad to be here. Thanks for having us. Yeah, absolutely. So let me tell you a little bit more about our guests. Uh, Chris McNutt and Nick Covington are co-founders of the Human Restoration Project, which is a nonprofit aimed at transforming school systems towards human-centered policies that promote well-being and learning. Uh, Chris is the executive director of the Human Restoration Project. He is obsessed with the benefits of progressive education and envisions building a practical place to find everything for free under one roof. Chris was a public high school digital media and design educator who centered his practice on experiential learning, purpose-driven pathways, and community involvement. Nick Covington is creative director of the Human Restoration Project. Nick is a former high school social studies teacher in Iowa public schools who promoted progressive education across the board in his classroom. Nick aims to reestablish the idea of what school could be to one of student-centered success that relies on their ideas and knowledge instead of a dictated, future-ready curriculum. Chris and Nick, once again, welcome to All the Above, and I'm gonna kick it over to Manuel for our first question. Yeah, humanizing dopeness in the building. Thank you both for taking time out to be here with us on All of the Above. And before we dive deep into it, um, you know, there's a, there's a term that we use a lot on this show and a term that comes up a lot in conversations around educational equity and educational justice. And that, of course, is the term humanizing. Now, ostensibly, our school system already is built by humans and it's in the service of humans. So let's first start by maybe unpacking that term a little bit and what you mean by it. So what exactly is humanizing or what exactly is a humanizing education? And is that synonymous, would you say, with progressive education? And why don't we toss it to Chris first? Thing, sure thing. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, for us as an organization, I, I think simply stated, to be human is to be cared for and to be loved and to be valued. Um, kind of paraphrasing one of the folks that really informs a lot of our work, which is Paulo Freire, uh, to be human, we have to be able to tell our own stories. We have to be able to find our own destiny. And when we can't tell those stories, it's it's dehumanizing. We're incapable of being content. Um, and with all the things going on in the world today, it's probably worth mentioning uh, that with the overturning of Roe v. Wade, which I know you probably record this early, but that was yesterday, uh, our organization, as well as everyone kind of involved in this progressive education sphere is looking for uh, ways for folks to get involved in the social justice component of this as well. So it's connecting that love and care also with a social justice organizational element to ensure that all people are cared for. Um, I mean, the progressive education part is inspired by folks like like John Dewey, Bell Hooks, Linda Daring-Hammond, Jonathan Kozel. It's, it's sponsored by like deep critical thinking skills, moving away from that standardized rote system to one where everyone's cared for, both young people and educators. Um, and to make that happen, again, there's that social justice component. It's about having your own voice, 
being able to stand up for yourself, having that self-affirmation uh, to make a difference. Nice. Nick, any thoughts any, or anything that you would like to add to this yeah, idea? Yeah, certainly, certainly. So, I mean, we always say that we want um, student-centered schools, right, and, and student-centered classrooms, but um, how much buy-in and how much input do students really have when they walk into the door, either of the school building uh, or of your classroom? You know, do they have a say in um, school discipline policies and practices? Do they have a say in the way that they will be assessed? Do they have a say in um, what they're going to be learning on any given day and how, right, how they're going to situate themselves in um, either physical or virtual spaces? Um, are there student stakeholder groups meeting that help hire teachers and administrators um, or do you have them as voting members or at least present members on, on the school board? Um, and again, do they have a say in what those daily working conditions look like? Um, you know, how am I going to enter into that work when, why, and how? Um, kind of think about the same things, the same ways we would say a, a work environment is humanizing or dehumanizing. A lot of that revolves around autonomy, agency, relatedness, um, et cetera. So, Really, the question is, when I walk into a school building, when I walk into a classroom, how much of myself and my identity, my my agency, uh, my community that, that I identify with and I connect to, do I have to give up when I walk in, walk in through your door, when I walk in the door of, um, you know, your school building? And of course, the conversation of equity is based around the fact that that burden is not equally distributed amongst everybody. Some people feel the burden of having to give themselves up to a system more than others. And other people obviously fit into that too. So that expresses itself, um, not just in discipline and behavior, but also in um, assessment and in grades and in all of those other things too. So um, we'll probably talk about this a little bit later in the conversation, but we see all those factors as connected. So we're not just an organization that tackles you know, going gradeless, and we're not just a, an organization that tackles, um, you know, issues um, uh, like equity and and freedom, uh, like bodily autonomy and uh, and privacy. That again, we we had just seen um, attacked in the last day too. Um, but we're kind of a, a group that looks at those systems holistically, um, and then we'll work to provide um, both grassroots support. Um, for individual teachers who want to humanize their classrooms, but also um, systemic um, shifts too. So that way those grassroots practices can be sustained. So um, our vision specifically at the Human Restoration Project is rooted in, uh, in really four things, four main values, that it's rooted in purpose finding and community connection. Um, social justice is the cornerstone of the educational experience. Dehumanizing practices don't belong in schools and that learners are respectful toward each other's innate human worth. And we kind of have a zero-based thinking mindset where um, we're going to start from scratch um, and rebuild our classrooms first, um, you know, as, as classroom educators, as much as we can around those principles, um, and then look to see where um, where down the line in the system or where in that hierarchy we can we can work to sustain that change as well. Yeah, I really uh, appreciate a lot of what you're saying there. And it, uh, it, I think, resonates so much with me as a person who works at the kind of administrative and system level uh, with just thinking about the extent to which the pressures that are put upon school systems and that sometimes school systems also put upon themselves, uh, you know, create outcomes that can so often tend to veer away from those kind of four basic principles that um, that you were just naming. And yet we still kind of start with them. 
uh, in some ways in kindergarten, right? Like those basic principles of, you know, everyone uh, has a place here and we're going to be kind and respectful to others and we're going to practice things like sharing and, and, you know, recognizing the beauty and joy in ourselves and other people uh, and how little of that seems to be left in many ways by the time we get to, you know, 12th grade um, without a lot of intense intentional work from, from educators to make it happen. And Speaking of that intense, intentional work from educators, um, you all have certainly advocated for a number of classroom practices that, uh, that teachers and educators in general can employ to bring to life the kind of humanizing experience you're naming. So that's ranged from things like alternative grading practices to experiential learning, um, all kinds of things. So, you know, kind of keeping your classroom teacher hat on for a moment, what are some of the, um, some of the practices that folks who might be listening or watching today uh, can take away from this conversation to say, here's, here's some stuff I can do in my sphere of influence to, uh, to practice or to put into place practices that can create this more humanizing educational experience. Yeah, we can start with that one. Um, so I think it's important to open up by saying that there are plenty of individuals who are doing awesome progressive education-based work, and we believe in the value of public education. I think that teachers can make a difference. We're primarily focused on changing those systems, which, as you all know, are formed heavily by things like capitalism and imperialism and racism and all these different things uh, that, in some ways, the system is designed the way it was expected to be designed. Um, we feel like it's the role of the teacher to use their relative power, privilege, context, et cetera, to push that as far as they can to inspire that grassroots change. So for us in our classroom, so Nick and I uh, taught basically about 10 years each in public education. I taught digital media and design as well as social studies. Uh, and I, I think that the way that manifests for me is just always having that mindset of humanizing ed, like caring for students. I was listening to uh, you all did a podcast, I think it was a couple of weeks ago, uh, where you brought the news story of the ed tech like hall pass system, where folks would like check out and uh, it would like monitor where they are and how long they've been. It's electronically tracking them. Um, I think it, it like, for example, using that as a, a, a in context, a progressive education mindset would be trusting students and building relationships with them and, and treating them like like people, like normal people, because I wouldn't like to do that as a teacher. I wouldn't want to have to check out and have someone timing me. Um, it feels like you're a prisoner or at, at most, or at least someone without the amount of autonomy that they should have as a human being. Um, so that's the first thing. The second thing would be looking at underlying systems and finding ways to uh, creatively non-comply. Uh, that's a, a Deborah Meyerism uh, saying. Uh, it's if you're going to build systems that care about kids, you have to take a few risks there where, you know, you might do one thing and, and say another within reason. Uh, for example, I operated my class. Ostensibly, it was gradeless. Uh, we had to give a grade at the end, but we had a portfolio system. You could remediate those grades at any time. Uh, there were many, many ways to uh, obtain an A. One year, I just gave the kids all A's <laughs> and kind of suffered some pushback there just to see what would happen. Um, it also is providing students a voice in their classroom, thinking about how your classes run, giving them shared power over choosing curriculum or activities, uh, recognizing the fact that just because you covered all the standards didn't mean that you actually taught everything. Most kids aren't going to remember most of that stuff. So finding ways to engage with potentially fewer, but topics that students want to engage with. 
Um, and last one I can think of off the top of my head would be like like discipline. Uh, being able to recognize that if you send a kid to the office uh, in, in many schools, not all, but in many schools, that is not a good thing. Uh, and often it leads to more problems than it solves. So finding ways to mitigate that with students in the room. And again, it all just comes back to relationship building, but it's looking at those structures, grades, discipline, curriculum, uh, as opposed to just like teaching a lesson about SEL, it's literally just doing SEL in the class. Yeah, and to give a, a pretty concrete example, I think, to to get back to this idea of, uh, of uh, standards that Chris referenced over here, but um, I think, you know, a human-centered classroom should probably start with students rather than start with standards. And again, to come back to what I was saying before with how much do you have to give up when you walk into the door? Well, with a student first a truly student-centered classroom, um, you're meeting students where they're at, um, and you're kind of working to build uh, build a curriculum around them um, and their interests and their abilities and working to advance all of those things simultaneously. So um, yeah, there, there's all kinds of examples that you could look at with instruction and assessment and management. All, all to give an example of what I use to start off my uh, my, my um my classes, my courses, whether they're semester long or year long. So if you just think about the collective commitments, you know, that that govern your classroom space, call them the classroom rules, or um, if you're a school that uses PBIS and all those things are already pre-generated and rendered for you, um, again, you kind of run into a position where you're trying to fit students into a model that, you know, is going to ultimately exclude some amount of kids at the margin. Um, but when you work with students uh, to actually build those collective commitments, well, I guess to collectively, <laughs> um, I'll, I'll talk through that. So this is an example of an exercise that, um, that I've used with my classes, and we'll actually put it in our um, Sharing Power with Students handbook that we are uh, we're working on, uh, hopefully to be released this fall for um, teachers and buildings to use. But what, all I do is I use a Google form at the beginning of the year to ask them, get some anonymous feedback about three things. Um, have them list an expectation they have for themselves, an expectation they have of their peers, and then an expectation they have of teachers or often, I mean, you guys are educators, administrators, multiple adults in the room. So um, kind of give them a way to actually um, communicate the expectations that they have of, of us as well. Then from that, I just um, make a draft collective commitment document with about three or four bullets for each one of those points that captures the language of the student responses. So um, it'll just be a single page that says, um, uh, for myself, I expect, and then, you know, three things that kind of capture the gist of, of those comments. For my peers, I expect, and then for adults in the room, I expect um, blank. Uh, then I just print that off along with an anonymized, you know, to the extent that it can be, list of all the responses, you know, so I might have 60, 70 responses per question, but I give all that data to students to look over and just say, hey, these are the expectations that you all said you had for yourself, for each other, and for me. Um, and I want you to read through those and then read through my draft document and just see if uh, see if see if I you know was faithful to um, the information that you gave me. And if I wasn't, or if you feel like something is missing, add it to the draft. And essentially, we have, you know, I wasn't teaching a government class. I was teaching, you know, an AP European history class or an econ class. 
Um, but we essentially go through like a little constitutional convention where over the course of the class period, right, they're talking in their groups, um, I'm getting the feedback on the drafts, and then I'll incorporate that language into the draft and um, then we'll vote on it. I'll, I'll do an anonymous poll that just says something like, do you agree with the expectations as suggested by your classmates and yourself and as represented in our collective commitments document by Mr. Covington? And almost every single time, um, it's a unanimous 100% yes vote. Um, now, something like that is not utopian. You know, it's not perfect, but students know right away uh, that they have a say and they have a stake in the way that that classroom functions um, and that I am going to be responsive to them. You know, like we're going to build this thing together is what that what that document communicates right away. Um, and that they have a say in those expectations. And, and really, I've, I've felt that it just gets things started um, on the right foot. So again, to kind of think about um, the connections to, I guess, um, the the world of work, or I guess the world outside of school, isn't that what we want students to be participating in inside school is to, um, you know, prepare for the kind of uh, democratic systems we expect students to walk into when they leave the school building. Um, Deborah Meyer, again, like a, a big influence of ours, um, would say, how can you expect students to be participatory citizens in a democracy if for their entirety of their school year, they never get a chance to write the rules. If they never get a chance to experience what that process looks like, you know, they kind of get a, a mini, uh, maybe a benevolent authoritarianism, you know, for throughout their their schooling. That's not to say it's it's all negative, right? But um, but then they get out into the world and right, they're not versed in you know how uh, how those processes work, and they've never had to go through that. Well. Let's look at workplaces as well. Do we? What do we have in our workplace? Do we have uh, little mini fiefdoms and authoritarian spaces at, at work, or is the expectation that workers will govern themselves right through through organizing and um, and and those kinds of things too? So again, like schools just sort of mirror in in microcosm the the expectations we have of society. So in making classroom and school spaces the way we would expect. Uh, or the way we desire the rest of their lifetime to look, well, let's start to practice um, those things and, and uh, be in the process of humanization um, uh, while, they're, while they're in school. So that way they can be uh, those people that are driving changes and do experience the world in a, in a more humane way once they graduate. I love that. I love that. And, you know, speaking as a classroom teacher, I can tell you that uh, a lot of our, our listeners and a lot of our AOTA family also also love that. And it resonates with us, this idea of, of really helping truly center students in, in the process of their own learning and in our own classrooms. And as a teacher who once gave all A's and once advocated for giving all A's to students, right, when the pandemic was starting and the school year sort of just fell apart on us in that March of 2020. Um, a lot of classroom teachers really responded to that and really liked that idea of, you know, clearing out grades for that school year because of the uncertainty. But what I found was over time, over as the, the weeks and the months progressed and the end of the school year came, a lot of the teachers who, who told me, individually told me that they also are going to give all A's, a lot of them ended up reverting back to back to what the system system wants. And a lot of those teachers ended up giving a lot of Ds when I when I go back and look. And um, to me, it speaks to just the weight of the system, the complexity of the system within which we work and how difficult it is uh, to go against the system that is, as you say, built on imperialism, built on racism, capitalism. And within the system, within this, this what feels like just a, a momentous 
just weight over us classroom teachers who are trying to do right by the little ones in front of us. It's just the, a simple fact that it's very resistant to change. The system does not want to hear about these ideas that um, that you've been advocating for. So what does it take or what will it take uh, in terms of like systemic, just uh, policy level, advocacy level, in terms of changing the actual system, which you um, earlier said was one of the focal points of your organization, what does it take to really make that systemic change? And where does the Human Restoration Project fit into this change? Yeah, yeah. So I, I, responding to that point you just made about um, individual ed educators, I think a big point for us is that we never are going to advocate for educators to take risks that could that could somehow like harm them or harm them family. Like for example, something that would get them like fired or right. something like that. Um, but those that do like there are a lot of folks that have political and social capital to be building those coalitions to take those mitigated risks like using using logic i think there's space for everyone to take action as classrooms are still at least for the most part democratic spaces they're fairly uncensored despite um some things that have been happening recently uh so we believe that there is a lot of space for individual classrooms uh, to to start making these changes, as I'm sure many of you probably have at one point or another. Um, so we're firm believers in that grassroots movement to change the system. Uh, education reform measures at the the national or even state level tend to lead to more problems. Like I'm thinking, like a, a nation at risk, no child left behind, race at the top. There's not a political party that's necessarily advocating for ending standardized testing or ending grading or these things that we're talking about. So the resistance to these things really has to come at an educator level and at a young person level uh, to see the impact of those practices in the classroom. And the way that we can do that is both through creative non-compliance, as I was talking about earlier, uh, but also just showing the work in action. Um, in, in my experience, after students have gone through the class and seen how these systems can change the way that learning is done, their families and, and themselves uh, advocate for it, no matter what side of the political aisle they're on or you know what their background may be. Uh, we're huge proponents of things like community expo nights, uh, where folks in the community come in and see the stuff you've been working on all year to help build that coalition of educators and young people and families to back up all these things that are going on in a progressive classroom. It's like showing rather than telling. Um, we've seen a lot of growth, especially in the ungrading space and maybe to like a, an extent the restorative justice movement for that advocacy resource creation, volunteering, et cetera. Uh, it's our goal that that starts locally, maybe expands to your cohort of teachers. And then over time, that could be the school or even the state. Um, and we've seen many, many pockets of folks show up, um, which to me is a, a huge benefit of social media and being involved um, online as an educator. Our mission as an organization is is through inform, guide, grow. We have like our uh, theory of change. Inform being that we have podcasts and writings. We have a research database. This is very scientifically backed by child developmental psychologists, um, or even just sharing stuff on social media. All those things inform folks. Guide meaning that we produce a ton of free materials and handbooks on how to do these things, uh, specifically on grading, uh, path to purpose finding, virtual learning was a big one, and counteracting. And I say this in air quotes, uh, learning loss and what that really means. Um, we've also done some projects with uh, young people to gather their voices. We have this thing called 100 Days of Conversations, uh, where we spoke to over 500 different folks, about half of which were young people and educators and some of the other half, uh, about what they thought about school. And we found that the things that they want to see in school, the things that they value about school, 
almost perfectly aligned with the exact same things that we're promoting as an organization. Um, so that's the the guiding step, using those voices and, and using our resources to actually do something with it. And then finally, grow, which is the, the really in-depth portion, which is how do we get more people on board with doing that? And that's through networking and volunteering and then the conference that we have coming up. Um, I should mention all of these things basically are free um, outside of some PD consulting work that we do and the conference that we have coming up. Everything else is available for free on our website. We don't charge for publications or anything of that nature. I want to I want to connect back to a couple of threads in the conversation here. Um, kind of first, Manuel, to to your point too about the the pandemic and our sort of response to this. I remember in my own building um, or in my own district, right? The content, the the kind of the mantra was grace. You know, extend extend grace um, in in grading, extend grace in attendance, extend grace in all these other ways. And we really had an opportunity with the pandemic, you know, even as educators kind of recenter our own values and, and work to connect um, our students to so, some, some things that kind of just transcend the day-to-day -day of, of school. So rather than chasing points and grades and those kinds of things, like here you are sitting in your bedroom, how can we help um, mitigate feelings of isolation and, and help um, work through the trauma and loss of the, of the pandemic and, and those kinds of things too. And I think as, as, classroom teachers and, and as administrators, we don't wake up trying to be the best bureaucrats that we can be, right? We want to we wanna motivate and engage and inspire kids and build community and do all those things. So really, like, I, I think that's, that's where our work really shines is it's just connecting teachers back to those transcendent um, values that they had before they were <laughs> beaten out of them by the top-down hierarchical system that, you know, you were mentioning in the question, um, you know, a, a kind of a um, an, an agitating question. I, I kind of mean this tongue in cheek, but not really that I ask quite frequently is, you know, what if we created a, wor a better world and it didn't raise test scores? So that prompts us to think, what could those other measures be, right? How would we know that the world was better if the test scores didn't go up? Well, Jeff, Jeffrey, you mentioned earlier then too, um, how students experience changes from those elementary classrooms, which really are community focused, right? I, I just admire and I adore um, elementary uh, classrooms in particular. Um, having an elementary uh, child, age child myself, you know, and seeing the connections that she has to her classmates and her teachers, there is a time it, it, that they make a transition probably middle school through high school where it becomes more content focused, right? Where then you're moving from classroom to classroom and maybe it becomes more impersonal and more isolating and more, and more alienating. Um, but to Chris's point, see, I'm bringing all of this together here. The, the research would say that uh, kids actually ask fewer questions as they go through their schooling career. So they start off, my seven-year-old now um, will ask, you know, X number of questions a, a day in school. And then over the course of her schooling, she'll ask fewer and fewer. Well, we think it should be the exact opposite. <laughs> how, how can it be that we graduate kids and they're asking fewer questions uh, than when they went in? Uh, that kind of seems like something there is broken. Um, and also, right, if we just look at the impact of, um, I mean, of a lot of things, who, who can, who can um, kind of peel out the causality between all these factors, but we're in a youth mental health crisis for so many reasons, you know. Um, one of those big reasons is that um, students really struggle in finding a purpose in a world that kind of just seems um, chaotic and adrift and kind of sailing from crisis to crisis, right? So really about kind of turning inward and finding your own um, power, kind of finding your own uh, peace, but then also finding connectivity to other people. So, right, how, how could we move away from content um, um, content driven instruction and school models that then 
require a certain way of being in the classroom, right? That then some kids are excluded from that for their behavior or they get poor grades and that leads to demotivating kind of things. So see, we, we, we use test scores and grades to justify a lot of dehumanizing practices. Now, to bring this back to the Human Restoration Project and connecting teachers to the transcendent is, right, we try to ask teachers, what are their values? What are their hopes? And what are the visions that they have for their students? And um, in our conversations with teachers from, I, I would want to say around the world, but really like from, from particular hemispheres, not just US centric, but from Europe and from Canada and from South America too, um, is, is right. They, they want their students to be um, uh, hopeful and they want them to be loving and they want them to be caring and community focused. And they want them to be all these things that we just don't have indicators for in schools. So then um, working, for, working from that then and, in, and kind of giving them, again, empowering through that inform, guide, grow model, giving them the tools, like the understanding, like I didn't know there could be another way of existing in school than what I was taught in my education program or what my school just gives me, you know, because as educators, we know um, kind of the important parts of our profession are not the thing that anyone can come off the street and do. So in an effort it, at a time when uh, education is is under attack, especially particularly in public education. It's being deprofessionalized, so that way, you know, we're kind of moving to a point now where perhaps you could just hand somebody the the curriculum guide and they would teach page one on day one and page two on day two, and they would do all the all, all kind of those rote things. Well, we're we're kind of taking the power back for ourselves, right? So through empowering teachers with a with kind of a new vision and those hopes and dreams both that they had coming into the profession and that they have for their kids. Um, but then also, right, again, kind of connecting to organizational principles that might primarily be associated, right, with, uh, with activism or organized labor and those kinds of things too, but building coalitions um, and activating um, uh, other passionate people in either your building or in your, you know, your little cul-de-sac, like your pod that you have. Um, or across buildings um, in order to sustain that change too, to, to create board policies or to um, bring a unified vision to the curriculum uh, committee, you know? So that way you're not just toiling away in isolation because no teacher can thrive in an environment where they're consistently the only uh, voice pushing in one direction or the only voice of dissent against, uh, you know, policies that they view as, um, as frankly wrong. Um, so it's about convincing other people too. So Again, we want to inform teachers about those practices, help them situate them in their classroom, but then also um, become better collaborators with, uh, with their colleagues and with administrators too, obviously play a huge role in this. Um, and, and then to get those groups in one context connected to um, groups in other contexts. So our PD model is actually built around this human-centered schools network, um, uh, award-winning, I should say, <laughs> when we entered it into this. Uh, Reimagine Education uh, Conference, a global competition. Our Human Centered Schools Network PD won um, silver in the um, purpose finding and well-being category for for that uh, that tool. So that's where we we connect individual teachers to and those cohorts in some buildings and in certain districts to people doing that work in other districts as well. Um, so that way, it's not even just an individual teacher or individual district. We can connect those groups so they can. And say, okay, how are you addressing these similar issues? How are um, how are other groups even borrowing 
you know, um, borrowing um, language, borrowing lessons, kind of create a repository for people in that network to, um, to problem solve those things together. Is the long answer. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's, uh, there's so much that you both said there <laughs> that, that I want to respond to. Uh, you know, I think we could go on for, for hours. Uh, unfortunately, we just have one more uh, deeper question for you today. Uh, but I think it connects to some of the themes that, um, that you were both just um, speaking around, which is, you know, I think it's fair to say that schools and school systems have never systematically done a great job at, at you know, humanizing and supporting marginalized student groups um, in particular, and that we are also living through a moment of sort of backlash and escalation uh, and real sort of policy violence against um, many student groups. And, uh, you know, this is maybe most notoriously captured in things like Florida's, uh, you know, don't say gay bill or the anti-CRT provisions that are, you know, in numerous states across the country. Um, and also, even in the sort of quote-unquote progressive uh, states in the union, like here in California, we're seeing examples of educators being uh, you know, coming under scrutiny or being disciplined or, you know, facing consequences for doing things like, uh, you know, uh, showing videos about Pride Month or uh, wearing an I Can't Breathe t-shirt um, in the classroom, those sorts of things. Uh, so as these kind of threats against educators for doing, you know, the kind of quote-unquote woke uh, work in the classroom, as those threats escalate, um, how do you think educators around the nation, um, and in your case, in places like Iowa um, and Ohio, uh, should really navigate this moment when there's potential risk uh, for doing the work we're talking about here? Yeah, yeah, that's that's a really difficult question. There's not there's not an easy solution to any of this. There were they were we would have already done it. Um, first off, I, I had to write this down when we were talking about the previous question. I think it connects really well to this, which is. Uh, Alex Bennett's work. Uh, she wrote Equity Center Trauma Informed Education. Um, and the first step I would say for an educator to, to think about these things is starting with just their individual classroom, um, recognizing based off of that book, that school is, first off, extremely important for many students. It's an outlet for many students. I'm sure every single person listening, as well as you all, have seen the positive impacts of school on some students. While simultaneously, we have to recognize or have that cognitive dissonance that school is a place of trauma for many students, both in terms of these new laws that are coming into play, but also things that have been there, uh, like carceral network uh, for, for decades has uh, targeted uh, through racist and sexist policies for students. Um, and there are things that I, I have contributed to, as well as all educators to an extent have contributed to, because that's the system that we find ourselves in. Um, so finding ways to push back against that are very important and recognizing the ways that we might do that without intentionally even doing it. Um, in terms of you know things that are happening recently, I, I live in Ohio. Uh, the heartbeat bill uh, was passed today, uh, which is, you know, is what it is right now. Uh, I mean, critical race theory, divisive concepts, culture war stuff, all of that is going on here. It likely will be in place uh, by the beginning of next school year. And I, I think it's important for us to recognize that there's no point in being on the defense with this. Uh, yes, it's good to like state your opinion and, and, and talk about these things and care about these things. But no one on that side is going to care about a bunch of folks on Twitter saying that it's bad, nor are they going to care that, you know, if you say to 
like if you tweet or you know social media post at someone and say like you're wrong, uh, it's it's not going to lead to lasting change. In our view, it's as I kind of said before, it's about showing what students can do and just kind of doing it and working with young people and just doing that work. And that also involves getting organized with other organizations, uh, resisting uh, in your own way and, and taking that risk. And I know Nick has much more firsthand experience with this, so my answer will be brief. Uh, my school did have its fair share of complaints and worries about this kind of stuff. Um, for us, it was mostly a, a fear of self-censorship. So, you know, not doing something because you were afraid that something might happen. Um, and I knew plenty of teachers, uh, and nice to an extent myself, who strayed away from specific, you know, book selections or topics because they didn't want to have to deal with a, a family member calling in and then having an administrator meeting. If your administrator is not necessarily supportive, uh, that can always be um, a situation you don't want to find yourselves in. So, so in broad terms, I think it's important for us to uh, figure out how much power and privilege we have in our own context. Like if you're uh, like a, a building leader or you have been there for a long time and you're involved in a bunch of different organizations, are they going to fire you? I mean, how difficult is it to actually get fired? Do you have a union backing you, uh, et cetera? Uh, and I, it, it sounds kind of crazy to say that out loud, but there, that is the risk that you're, you're taking, right? So you have to recognize those things. Um, that could be, you know, maybe you do something really minor. Maybe you have an, like an LGBTQIA uh, like flag or you have a BLM flag or, or something that just signifies like, hey, like I see you, you're a person. Uh, and I, I've had students approach me and talk to me about the fact I have, you know, flags on my, my laptop, uh, and they feel safe talking to me about things and it helps to have a trusted adult. Um, and then that ranges up, right? You have, you know, you incorporate diverse voices in the curriculum. Uh, you talk about divisive concepts. There are ways to do that and kind of get around the law. Uh, and then I said like the highest level perhaps is starting to change those systems in the classroom that discriminate against, that discriminate against students, uh, especially those from marginalized communities. So things like homework and grades, and discipline and testing, finding your own way to disrupt those systems and then connect with other folks uh, that are doing that work. Uh, but Nick has Nick, Nick has a lot more experience with this at Iowa because they actually do have those laws on the record. This is true. I, and I'll, I'll spare us the, the full length story. I mean, you can, you can get that in other places here too. But essentially, um, it boils down to the fact that I was trying to teach about white nationalism in the context of uh, my AP European history course. Um, and that essentially launched, I don't know, a year and a half long um, incident that uh, kind of precipitated my leaving the classroom entirely. So um, told very, very infamously now that current events do not belong in a history class um, and ending with me um, ha having to take an unpaid day of leave and getting a discipline letter in my file for speaking on the record uh, with, uh, with a journalist in Axios um, about the impact that Iowa's so-called divisive concepts bill was actually having on the way we were teaching about Black History Month and the civil rights movement. So, um, yeah, so those are some of the things that that were the push factors that eventually did leave lead to me leaving that particular classroom context where um, I had been for those ten years. And um, that's not to say that uh, there there was I didn't go down without a struggle. Um, it just was the the culmination of a uh, of uh, a lot of different factors there too. But I think. Probably the most important factor um, in in thinking about that is really thinking about the motivation for people who are pushing uh, pushing these laws, kind of where they're getting their information from, et cetera. This is um, language that I would attribute to Jennifer Berkshire, um, who's a journalist. They've got this wonderful podcast. Um, have you have you heard? And um, she 
covered an academic article where they had talked about the grievance industrial complex. And that has been a concept that has really stuck with me because um, it really does describe what the goal, what the end goal is for um, for the people pushing these agendas, right? The, the culture war is not, uh, th- there's not a goal uh, for the end of the culture war. The culture war is a means to itself, right? To feed this grievance industrial complex. So they have to thrive on, you know, consuming, uh, consuming hatred and uh, kind of determining who the next enemy is going to be. So if you recall uh, in 2020, as we went from the George Floyd protests and the, the Black Lives Matter protests and this in the civil rights movement that we had in the summer of 2020, um, it was very shortly after that that we got that um, that backlash in the forms of those anti-CRT um, bills. I think the first time probably 90% of Americans and uh, educators had ever heard of critical race theory was in that particular context. Um, and look where it's it's gone today, right? Now it's uh, targeting um, uh, drag shows and very specifically targeting pride events, right? Actually leading to incidents of, you know, um, domestic terrorists uh, in the back of a U-Haul targeting an Ohio, uh, Idaho pride fest. Um, so, right, what the grievance industrial complex wants to do is just thrive on that never-ending cycle of, uh, of hatred and division because it feeds clicks and ratings and somebody's getting a paycheck out of it. So we need to be very deliberate in communicating our positive educational agenda that we have for kids um, and just being very clear about, um, about both the the fact that this these conversations are rooted in history, they are rooted in um, our current experience of the world and student understanding of those things, and that right, it's not biased to uh, be informed about um, the issues that are happening in the world, and that frankly there is a a right and wrong side to this. <laughs> um, and one of the things I think that that I um, that was a revelation to me, you know, um, when when I first got caught up in this um, for saying that white nationalism is bad, um, is that the uh, the admin who was who was kind of presiding over the, this series of complaints against me, uh, I, I was pretty upfront in the beginning just to say like, can you not see how this is a pol- politically motivated um, kind of uh, attack on the way that I'm teaching about white nationalism, right? I'm, I'm saying that the white nationalists are bad. I'm letting my students hear what white nationalists are having to say in their own words. Um, and I said from day one that this thing was politically motivated and got from my admin, no, you know, these are just concerned parents. These are just this, that, and the other thing. And, you know, turns out it absolutely was politically motivated every single um, step of the way. So we just need to be aware of the fact that these, these aren't good faith complaints. These are things that are feeding into um, uh, either the, the, either they're astroturfed, right? These are um, these are people who are working for organizations who are you know trying to change laws and do all those kinds of things. Um, and what we're doing is trying to uh, teach kids in the uh, in the best way that we know how. So when I talk about talk when I finally came out and talked about this um, openly in the public, the the feedback I got from parents um, and students was 100% positive. Um, the feedback I got from parents mostly was, I had no idea this was going on. Um, I wish I would have spoken out more. And the last thing that I'll say on this too, then is um, I, I know that there are a lot of people who are um, uh, afraid to speak out about these things or don't know how to do it in ways that um, that they feel necessarily comfortable doing. But I think at a certain point, we just need to realize that if you're not speaking up in those spaces, if you're not speaking at the school board meeting, or if you're not, you know, voting for school board candidates or those kinds of things, who is speaking on your behalf? You know, if you're not going to the parent stakeholder groups to talk about book selections, who is attending that meeting? 
right? So um, I think we we just need to um, uh, say just like it's just some easy thing that we can do, but um, we have to find find a little bit of that courage to you know um, to, to rock the boat a little bit. It, it kind of goes against a, a lot of what we want to do, but uh, but if we expect positive change, we need to push back. Um, it, it, with a loving, positive um, agenda for education um, for our kids. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, the work is um, so meaningful and so important at the same time, so, so difficult. And especially now with just all the noise and all the all the battles on so many fronts right now. So um, thank you each for for sharing all the, the humanizing dopeness that you did share. And we know a lot of folks who are listening or, or who are watching they want more, they want more. So talk to us about this upcoming conference that you have going on, the Conference to Restore Humanity, which I believe is late July. And um, I'm sure a lot of folks in the AOTA family would love to partake in this conference. So talk to us a, a bit about that and also where else uh, our uh, listeners could, could find more from the Human Restoration Project. Of course, of course. So this is a culminating event that Nick and I have been kind of brainstorming here for the about- God, almost one or two years now, um, which is how do we make an event that understands and acts on progressive education, that understands this humanization element in a time where it's more needed than ever, while simultaneously ensuring that it's super accessible and super sustainable? Uh, because there's nothing worse to me than spending $1,000, $2,000, $3,000 to go to a conference, um, including as a speaker, uh, which I always found to be very, very silly. Uh, so we're designing a virtual first conference. Everything is online and it's designed to be online. So it's not, you know, you sit in a, a bunch of Zoom rooms back to back and then you're done with the conference. Instead, uh, we're, we're kind of turning that on its head. So we have three awesome keynote speakers, all of which are flipped. So you get a video and then the following day, you get an hour long Q&A with the person uh, because the Q&A is always the best part anyway. Uh, so you can kind of watch at your own pace, see how it goes uh, and then get to talk with them. We have uh, Dr. Henry Giroux, uh, who is, I didn't know this before we brought him on. He's actually the founding theorist of critical pedagogy. He coined the term, which is shocking to me. The guy's written, God, 35, 40 books uh, on uh, re resisting uh, neoliberalism and conservatism and uh, advocating for students in democratic education. Um, he's a pretty well-known guy. Uh, we have Dr. Denisha Jones. Uh, she is the co-editor of Black Lives Matter at school and is super involved within the movement and making change. She's also a huge uh, proponent of free play as liberatory pedagogy. Um, and again, just an awesome individual. And finally, uh, not that I would pick favorites, but this one we already saw and it was just really cool. Uh, we have the Harvest Collegiate Circle Keepers. Uh, they're a group of about 25 or so students from New York, uh, from Harvest Collegiate High School. They are a restorative justice student org uh, with a mentor. Uh, and essentially what they do is they are the folks that do all pretty much the discipline at the school. Uh, so whenever someone has something that comes up, these kids go and meet with them. They have a whole mentorship program. Uh, and they they talk about things and talk it out and learn from each other. And the students present on how they do that and the history behind it and the research that supports it. It honestly is incredible. Uh, it just kind of goes to show like a lot of folks think that students can't do these things. They don't want to talk about these things. They don't have the power to do these things. Well, these, these kids are doing it uh, and they're leading a PD on it at a conference. So um, those three are going to be very exciting. Um, in addition to the keynotes, you also gain access to the tracks, which are all asynchronous. Uh, so you get to have like a 
a chat platform where you're interacting with folks. There'll be live sessions for office hours. But for the most part, you're working through things at the pace that fits you the most. Uh, those tracks are Learning Justice for Children, Anti-Carceral Pedagogy, uh, a Neurodivergent Collective on Designing for Neurodivergence, Childism and Education, and finally Feedback First Education. So it's diving into all those different systems and social justice components to find ways to build and better your practice in I think what most would see a, a more radical way. Uh, this is a little bit different than probably most conferences that are being offered. And then there's also some like live events that are offered in there. Um, one more thing I'll say about the conference, and it's kind of a, a more meta or I guess grandiose thing, but for us, this is an exercise on learning design. Uh, so that folks can engage with us no matter who they are, no matter what their background is. It's it's great for folks that uh, per perhaps cannot communicate effectively in a traditional conference environment, uh, maybe they can't just afford to travel to a traditional conference environment. Um, and it also is great for just learning at your own pace. I'm the kind of person like I need to walk around. I can't just like sit there for a two hour. It could be the best keynote that ever existed. I do not want to sit there. It just, it just doesn't work for me. Uh, so being able to watch the video, go do the dishes while I'm listening, et cetera, uh, and then just talk with folks is, it's much more, uh, sustainable. And finally, one more thing regarding sustainability. I also think that just the more and more we look at it, the traditional conference model is just not going to work in the long run. We can't keep doing 300 to 3,000 people flying all out to the exact same location. Uh, the, the, that industry, <laughs> from an environmentalist standpoint, not, not too hot. So uh, we're trying to think about something that's different. Yeah. Well, uh, sounds exciting. I, I second Manuel's comments that uh, I'm sure there are many folks in our audience who um, have really appreciated the message you've been communicating today and the topics and speakers uh, for your upcoming conference, I'm sure are going to resonate with a lot of folks. Um, so, uh, folks, to, to close out here, uh, if you want to learn more about the Human Restoration Project, uh, go to their website, which is humanrestorationproject.org. Um, and our two uh, amazing guests, uh, Chris McNutt and Nick Covington, co-founders of the Human Restoration Project. Thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you, Jeffrey. Thank you, Manuel. We appreciate it. It's been awesome. Thank you both. All right, folks, that's it for today's seminar. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, next up is our class dismissed. Stay tuned. All right, folks, now it's time for class dismissed. This is where we like to give shout outs to folks doing wonderful things in the world of education. And today's class dismissed goes out to AOTA family member, True, true, all of the above family. So Jeff, man, who do we got? Well, Manuel, uh, this um, class dismissed is gonna be very, very close to my heart. Um, and we are going to recognize, um, I, I would like to say through my biased lens, our, our number one uh, OG fan of all the above and a person who has had as much to do with my career path as an educator as anyone, um, my late mother, uh, Susan Clays, who uh, unfortunately passed away on April 25th um, after uh, a four-year journey um, with cancer. And um, just a couple of days ago, um, we uh, laid her ashes to rest and I uh, just want to take a few moments here to acknowledge um, someone who has been a huge source of inspiration for me um, and a huge supporter of our show. Um, 
My mother uh, actually came to visit us and uh, sat in with us in the studio back, yeah. uh, you know, in the before times when we would film in the studio with our student crew at uh, Manuel's high school. Um, so she got to, you know, kind of see the whole process from start to finish, meet uh, the students who were part of our crew. Um, she was at, among the very first uh, folks to hit up uh, aotashow.com slash support and get um, all the above hoodies, T-shirts, Teach the Truth shirts, um, all the, you know, the kind of AOTA show swag. Um, and really, I would say for me, so much of the moral foundation that I think drives me as a social justice educator and that undergirds um, who we are as a show and, and what we talk about and why we think it's so important to have discussions about issues that center uh, the voices and experiences of marginalized students, marginalized communities, marginalized educators um, that take a critical lens on issues of gender, race, class, etc. cetera. Um, for me, a huge portion of that comes from my mom and comes from the kind of legacy that she uh, has left for me um, despite her passing. So um, I just want to say thanks, Mom. I love you. Appreciate all your support for um, for us here at All the Above. And we're going to keep, keep making the show. And um, I'll do that thinking of you each and every time. Yeah, yeah. I love that. Thank you so much, Jeff, for, for sharing that. And I think I can speak for all of our audience members, everybody out there, all the dope educators, and just saying that, you know, you got my love and support, man. I know this is tough. I know this is very tough. And um, having had the pleasure of meeting her in person, I know how much of a warm-hearted, uh, brilliant, great uh, individual she was. So, uh, yeah, thank you again for sharing that. And, folks, that, that about does it for this week's full episode of all the above. I keep emphasizing full episode because we've had so many passing periods over the last couple of weeks because it's just, you know, it's a two-person operation. It's hard to juggle this, uh, especially when the school year is ending, transitioning to, to summer and, you know, personal things and all that good stuff too. So thank you so much uh, for being here with us. Again, all of our past episodes and merch and all that stuff, everything could be found at our website aotashow.com. All right. And we very much would appreciate if you give us that five-star review or thumbs up if you're watching this on uh, Spotify or watching this on YouTube or whatever you might be doing because that um, that positive support, those reviews go a long way to uh, helping us get this show popping up in more educators' feeds. All right, folks. So that about does it for all of you above for this week. We'll see y'all next time.